gay and gay ally. Welcome back to another episode of The Spiritual Gaze. I am one of your hosts, Angel. And I'm your other host, Brandon. And this is our twice-monthly podcast dedicated to exploring the wide reaches of spirituality without pretending that it all makes sense. But if it makes sense to you, by all means, let us know. Uh, yeah, seriously. Come on over. <laughs> Come on over. Come on over, baby. Explain it to us. Oh, there's nobody here to explain it to us. Connect the us. dots for us. Yeah, we would love it. Yeah, please. Uh, who are you? I'm Brandon Alter. I'm a spiritual queeler. I am a writer and a teacher of astrology and tarot. And, you know, just uh, just a tree blowing in the wind. Who are you? I am Angel Lopez. I am a queeler, a quistic. A quieter, a quaducer of films, and a queecher, and your husband. What's a queecher? A queer teacher. Oh, a queecher. I know it sounded like creature, right? Uh, yeah, I thought you were a queer creature. Like I'm like exploring like, you know, rocks and like bogs. Underground tunnels and crystal caves. Nope. Just a queer teacher. Cute. I'm a queer everything, guys. Girl, you sure are. Okay. Okay. I'm a I'm a podcast quost as well. You're a quadcaster. A quadcaster. <laughs> that one's not as appealing just, yeah, to the ears. Just casting my quads everywhere I can. Well, that's true. If you should see the shorts Angel's wearing right now. I love a short short. And uh, yeah, we are the Spiritual Gaze. And we are here to just offer some insights, some wisdoms. We're going to give you all a little cosmic update today. And we also have a really great spirit talk with the just all-around lovely Shane Kish. In the interest of Mercury Retrograde, because we've learned we recorded this spirit talk before the planet Mercury decided to fuck everything up. But we are recording this right now in the Mercury Madness. So hopefully this all goes smoothly. Those of you who pray, pray for us. Pray to Mercury. Let's do a check-in, though, eh? Let's check in. You want me to go first? Sure, go first. Uh, well, I'm doing well, honestly. Yeah. yeah. I feel you like seem my well. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I feel like my you know, my therapy's kicking in and That's great. My acceptance and forgiveness. I've really been on like an acceptance and forgiveness tour with myself. That's gorgeous. The acceptance and forgiveness tour. I'll share I uh, we had a really amazing breathwork session uh, this past weekend and I didn't do much breathwork. Did a lot of crying, though. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes that's more yeah. important. You know, sometimes you, we should just label it the crying circle. Breathe a little, cry a lot. Um, or we can host a crying circle. If anyone's interested in a crying circle, by all means, let us know. We'll host it. I mean, I would come and I would just like ask everyone, like, how are you doing that? Oh, you'd get there, honey. <laughs> I hope so. That'd be you'd, nice. You'd get there. I don't know. Um, in a circle, you would. Sometimes it just feels like a locked vault. It feels like a dry-ass <laughs> desert. Okay, sorry. Go on. So in my... Uh, breathwork crying session, I had this whole experience where I was really like going back through various points in my life. And like, I just saw myself like standing in a room with like a younger version of me. And I just was offering them like acceptance and forgiveness. And I went through like a childhood me, like a young teen me, 
older teen me, like 20 something. It was, and it was like such a powerful thing. And what was interesting though, toward the end of it was that I recognized, like I was just in silence and we were listening to this gorgeous track from uh, Donna DeLore. And there was a lot of for chanting around forgiveness in the song. And I was like, oh, wow, like I'm right on it. And uh, in that moment, I realized, oh, I haven't accepted and forgave myself now. Hmm. And that was like the biggest cry of them all. It wasn't. No, actually, that was like the biggest like sigh of relief. Oh, honestly, like it was like, right. Like, yeah, boo. So that's beautiful. Yeah, so I do feel like that was a big shift for me. And um and yeah, so just kind of trying to move forward uh from that place. Very Mercury retrograde in Libra, going back in time, partnering with past versions of yourself on your love and acceptance tour. Acceptance totally. and forgiveness tour. <laughs> yes. And love, I'm sure. That's beautiful. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. How are you doing? Girl, you know what? I too am actually, I feel like I've turned a corner, you know, like some space has opened up and I'm not feeling as low as, uh, as I had been for these past few weeks or months or, you know, time is completely outside my grasp, uh, but I'm feeling good. And I'm excited because I, as Angel knows, rented a U-Haul cargo van and drove out to La Quinta, which is like two and a half hours away from here. It's like east of Palm Springs. And I purchased a gently used Pilates reformer. I mean, you got a good ass deal. I on got that. a great ass deal because Pilates equipment is like crazy expensive. It's a racket, but don't get me started on that. But you taught Pilates for a long time. I taught Pilates for like 15 years and I took Pilates for even longer. And I realized that like my body really missed it. And it's been like a year and a half since I've even gotten on a reformer. And I just decided like, I need this. Like my body needs this. And even the idea of like turning our garage into like a little studio and even teaching a few privates to people who I enjoy, as opposed to like teaching anybody that walks into somebody else's studio. Anyway, it's also very Mercury retrograde sort of thing where I'm like resurrecting my relationship with my body and with Pilates and even with like teaching. Cause I do miss physical teaching. Like we've been teaching so much mind and spirit and heart. And I was like, I miss teaching a little bit of body. So that's been great. I've been getting on the reformer every day. It's amazing what my body remembers and it's definitely helping uh, stabilize my moods a little bit. Well, you know what? I miss physical studenting, so I'm yeah. excited. I'm excited to teach you. I'm ready. I'm waiting. Yeah. Tomorrow we'll schedule you. Fabulous. Um, so that's uh, that's my little check-in. Well, beautiful. All right. Well, now let's turn to a little cosmic, cosmic update. <laughs> All right, we're going to keep this brief so we can get to the gorgeous spirit talk with Shane. But Mercury is currently retrograde in Libra, so you want to look to where Libra is in your damn birth chart so you can understand where the relationships are that are up for renewal or release. Yeah, it's three direct weeks of retrograde, but of course you got a couple weeks up on top and a week and a half, two weeks on the back end of shadow experience. And during this, all of the outer planets are going to begin to move direct. Yeah, so we had Pluto just go direct at 24 degrees Capricorn. And then we had, which is important, just that degree point, right? 
Then we have uh, Saturn going direct on the 10th at six degrees Aquarius. And then Jupiter uh, goes direct on the 17th at, I believe, like 22 degrees Aquarius. And then like the following day, Mercury shifts direct. So we are in the beginning of like turning a cruise ship around. (laughs) Right. And by the time Mercury stations direct, I think we will all start to feel a little bit of momentum. And then it's just planets turning direct all the way through the beginning of the new year. Yeah, but when everything stations to go direct, it can feel like big shift energy. So a lot of you who are listening may feel like you have some like big shifts that have either already uh, come into motion or you're really feeling the pressure of them now starting to get into motion. But just know that this month uh, of October and really these next couple weeks of October are going to feel like, whoa, okay, I have to change. I have to do things differently. Or now we're pivoting to another direction. And um, it could feel a little crazy, but it is on some level shifting us in a direction that I think will have greater momentum for us in the long run. Gorgeous. And ultimately, remember, it's like about how you partner. So it's either the partnerships in your life or even more importantly, how you've been partnering with aspects of yourself, your mentality, your body, your spiritual practices. Yeah. Well, not to be like too meta about it, but everything is a partnership. Like the podcast that you partner with, the food that you partner with. So if you've been reconsidering your relationship with this podcast. (laughs) Don't make any rash decisions. Give us one more chance. Um, And you should also give us a review. Oh my God. Review us. That's a perfect thing to do during Mercury Retrograde. Rate us five stars. Leave us a gorgeous review. Nobody's reviewed us in so long. No, I think we've had a couple recently. Oh, really? But we should read them out. I know there was one of you who reviewed us in the last month of September. I saw it pop up. So, okay. When we get a few more, we're going to, starting with you in September, we we will read a bunch. On the air, in funny voices and accents. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it'll be fun. And also, since we're just talking about things, our astrology course, Astrology for Seekers, starts on October 26th, and we would love to have you there. So consider signing up and joining us. It's seven weeks. Classes are live, but we record them. So if you can't join them live, it's not a big deal. You get them the next day. Send us your questions. We'll address them in the following class. And this is a really practical approach to using the techniques of astrology to make your life make sense. Yeah, and if you're waiting for Mercury to go direct before you decide, we understand. But we promise if you sign up before then, you won't regret it. Hey! (laughs) (laughs) All right, sweet gazers. Without any more foolishness from us, let's head into this episode's Spirit Spirit Talk. All right, everybody. So we are so grateful uh, to be here in the spirit room with Shane Kish. Shane is a member of our Gazer community. Shane is a writer and a beauty expert and a queeler in his own right. So we are so excited to have Shane in the spirit room with us. Welcome, babes. My God, thank you guys so much for having me. I've been such a fan of your podcast and now I get to participate. 
Yes. Yay. Shane's also a Taurus legend. Taurus legend. With double Scorpio encased yeah. around it. Yeah, living that polarity life. You know, I've been embracing my Scorpio lately. I used to hide her. And like lately, I've just been like full on on attack mode, especially when it comes to like luxury. Mm, to speak more about that. Like, you know, well, the ultimate, like, I've worked in beauty for so long, so I feel like that's the ultimate Taurus career, right? Like, to, like, sit in a bathtub with a face mask on and, like, <laughs> I don't know, bark at people around me. But I've been, <laughs> I've been bringing kind of that Scorpio fire to it. So instead of just barking, I'd be, like, giving lectures while I'm in the bathtub or, yes. you know. There are a lot of things we want to... um talk to you about because I feel like you do kind of touch in a lot of things. You mentioned that you work in beauty, but of course we met you, yeah, through, um, through the tarot. And I was just curious, actually, in general, like what has your relationship been with, I guess, just spirituality? Like, did it play a role for you growing up? Yeah, I kind of grew up in a really odd, but pretty cool kind of way. My grandparents were Hungarian um, and they kind of had old school gypsy mentality back then. So it wasn't like religious or anything like that, but like, you know, my grandma read heads and there were tarot cards and stuff like that growing up for sure. But it was more in like kind of a like, I don't know, a really unique way that was like very true to the late 80s of like, unicorns and tarot cards and like velvet paintings and so it was always kind of around but I was super afraid of it when I was younger like just I didn't want to know anything and I was like a worrier and so things like that really kind of scared me and then um as I got older I mean you know the tarot cards will find you and they did and I started to read and I just had like a really kind of a natural knack for it like it was a way that I could really connect with people through high school and through college um and then I was trying to remember how I found you guys and I think it was through Ruby maybe Ruby Warrington I think so yeah right and then when you guys you know the pandemic hit you offered the class right after I feel like maybe like you know time kind of blurs back then but I never had taken any kind of professional anything around it. So I thought I would hop on and learn some things. And I fell in love with you guys and your amazing chemistry with each other and the people in the room. And it was really, really a fun experience. Well, we loved that class and loved having you in it. And um, I'm curious, has the tarot continued to like play a role for you? I'm going to be honest. I can't do it for myself. I'm a horrible like self-reader. Um, so I will do it for other people but I just haven't really got to do a whole lot of it. Um, but you know, what's really interesting is the internet and tarot, right? Like, cause when you're, you're doing it yourself, a card jumps out, you read the card, right? So I've been kind of doing that with the, with the interwebs, with Instagram, like, cause so many people do versions of tarot that like, I feel like sometimes when you stumble digitally on that card, it's almost the same thing. How do you guys feel about that? Totally. I feel that spirit uses algorithms. And even though it seems like there's something rigid about it, I I really believe that there isn't anything in existence that can't be used as a message. So yeah, 
I mean, my mom even has like one of those like tarot apps where like you literally just like have the app feed you cards. And at first I was really suspect, but then I was like, no, this actually, this works. This works because I mean, we know that like ghosts can mess with like electronic things. So why can't spirit like reach into whatever algorithm is happening and deliver to you what you need? That's my belief. Yeah, I'm here for that. So interesting hearing you say that you were kind of like afraid of it. Were, were there any experiences that you had with anything like kind of spiritual or even like supernatural when you were younger that fed some of that fear for you? Yeah, I think like the the Eastern European vibes for my grandparents, like it, they're a very like superstitious culture. And like just growing up, like there were so many like weird superstitions. And then when it came to like tarot and that kind of stuff, it was always in like the heat of drama. Mm. Like it was never just something done like without an urgent question or without like th this like drama attached to it where people would be talking about cheating husbands and getting their cars read or whatever the case is. And I learned a little bit later in my life, like that was like a lot of my youth. There was just a lot of fire, a lot of drama, a lot of like, like even when I first started to learn how to love, it was not really love. It was just extreme passion, right? Mm. Like I was either obsessed or I hated them or it was like the end of the world. I could never just like be in peace in that moment. It was always just the most. And that was very much what tarot was back then was like this urgent question. It was never like, hey, it's Sunday. Want to pull a card like just for fun. So I don't know. I think that really stunned, it stunned me for a little bit until I kind of came into my own right with it well yeah i feel like for a kid too like that can kind of create like a baseline of like almost like a like a sense of trauma right <laughs> just like this intensity emotional intensity around like everything around life it's suddenly just like oh shit like what's happening you know like a sense of like not being safe i imagine totally i mean that's what it kind of felt like but i mean like my Instagram handle is Shane of Fools. So like, I'm always going to be kind of a part of it. But I do feel that in my life, I dip in and out of it, of like when I really utilize it a lot and times that I don't utilize it so much. Yeah, well, we're curious about that. Because even on your website, you mentioned the fool. And there's a there's a picture of the fool there. And so what in that fool card do you resonate with? Why is it part of your own identity? This is so weird. Um, well, it originally came from my name is spelled weird, which is like the most like microaggressive thing that can happen to someone is to have an ordinary name that's spelled weird because it's just like you're always dealing with it of some sort. And so a lot of people used to go Shane, Shane, Shane. And that was my Instagram handle was Shane, Shane, Shane. And then I had a moment where I changed it to something else and some sneaky little bastard came in and stole it. So then I went to the next verse, right? Shane, 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 Shane of Fools. And then realizing like how much I love the Fool card and how much I've always loved it, that like that was the one that I thought would stick. Do you guys remember People Under the Stairs? The movie People Under the Stairs? I mean, I actually remember the poster for it more vividly than I remember the movie. So it was a... Uh, what's Wes Craven movie and it was mm -hmm. absolutely terrifying and the whole movie started with this kid called Fool and they were reading tarot cards and they were describing this kid as the Fool 
and his journey through this like really like messed up scary house and you know we were really young when that came out like maybe seven or eight and I don't know I just loved that cinematic moment I always loved scary movies and the fool and the tarot was like really big as like a subplot in that movie and I just always like stuck with me oh now I want to watch it do you remember if like the journey the fool takes through the house is like in any way parallel to like the major arcana at all? Or? Child. Not really. Like, because there was, uh, there was like a S and M daddy and a crazy mom and like these children <laughs> who lived in the walls, but like the kid, like in the very beginning, like there's a tarot card like reading session and it was the fool and his name is the fool. And they kind of tell, you know, I know Brandon, you say this like really well, but, uh, the point where you can either fall or fly and we just don't really know what's going to happen. I've always yeah. loved that. Do you feel like your life resonates on that level? Yeah. You know, I, um, sometimes I look back, especially I'm, I'm working on kind of a book that's a part memoir and I look back and I'm just really amazed that I'm where I'm at. Um, you know, those dark Midwest or, you know, East coast, those really small working class towns, they're really hard to get out of. And especially to really be able to like pursue your dreams. And so I kind of, you know, there were moments where I was just in limbo, right? I wasn't failing. I wasn't soaring. I was just kind of waiting to do either one and I've done both. So that's why I think the full is the one card that and the wheel of fortune those are the two cards that just have spoken to me my whole life. In some of your writing, you actually refer to where you're from. I, I, I loved this quote. You said, life there isn't so much about living your best life as it is surviving the one you were given. And I just even hearing you now talk about it some more, it sounds like that survivor mentality really um, runs deep in you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you have to like, White trash America is terrifying. Like, and I mean that with all love. And, you know, I grew up in a bar, in a really old bar. It was a country music venue. It was like an old hotel. And my family members lived in the hotel rooms, like above. And like, we ate dinner, like in the fryer in the back of the kitchen. And between addiction and just intensity, poverty, like all of that stuff you're in debt before you can even be alive like you're always just working to pay for just the basic things of what you have and rising above that is so damn hard so interesting that now you have like found yourself in this world that is on some level about inspiring you're inspiring others but you are i feel like also constantly inspiring yourself to live your quote unquote best life or not even your best life. Like right. just to do your best, like, or just to feel like accomplished or like, what the fuck's the best life? Like Cartier rings and a Porsche. I don't know. Like, what is it? You know? And that's the really interesting part. I think as we get older, like to really sit back and be like, what the hell is my actual best life? You've been really open and you've had, some really beautiful insights about your own exploration with drinking and with drugs and with sex. And the way you speak about it, I think is really honest because you talk about it as this negotiation that's always evolving. 
I'm wondering if we could just start to have a little bit of a conversation about recovery and addiction in all of its many forms, whether it's food or alcohol um, or even sex. Where are you at right now in terms of speaking about your own relationship to substance and checking out and checking in? Yeah, I think I think recently I've kind of had the aha moment that this might be where I want to put the effort in my life's work. And I think about it all the time. I mean, I was born in a bar. That's yeah. nuts. Like yeah. literally, like I I remember being in one of those little like things from the 80s that parents would put us in so they didn't have to babysit us that had like a bumper the whole way around it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. You would just like, you would just like fuck up your <laughs> living room with it. And like, I remember being that on the dance floor and like this giant <laughs> dance floor and it's just me and a disco light and a jukebox. I'm just like 50 mile an hour in it, like a crazy person, you know, that, that doesn't happen to everyone. I was the only kid there, like out of all my, you know, aunts and uncles, kids and stuff, I was the only one who lived there. And then after that, I, you know, I was a bar back. I was a stripper in a bar for a long time. I mean, I've just always like, it's run in me like the whole way through me, no matter what else I was doing. And then eventually I had to deal with my own substance abuse issues. And, you know, in that I took a really unique route. I, I mean, I, I didn't take a route, but I just, AA didn't ever really work for me. I'm so thankful it's in this world and it's helped so many people, but it wasn't right for me. And if you take that off the table, it's really hard to recover. There's not much else. It's very confusing, you know? So like being able to like try so many different things, because living in New York, I don't think we said this, but I do, I live in New York City. So the amount of access here is nuts. Like you can try a million different things. There's like refugee recovery. I did what was called harm, like a harm approach, a harm reduction approach with my therapist to kind of get to the root of all of these things that were kind of clouding my, my judgment and my growth and all of that stuff. And you write about an aha moment you had with your therapist where there was a differentiation between being an alcoholic and just having a healthy, how, what was that aha moment that you wrote about? Yeah, this was like a really important moment in my life is, um, I was just kind of silently trying to figure this out. I would pop into AA and I just never felt at home. I just, it's not because the people didn't make me feel at home. It was just the beliefs. I mean, even the thing of like the fact that, you know, I, I live in the positive. So having to say every single day I was an alcoholic over and over and over before I was even sure. I mean, I say mantras all the time. None of them are in a past tense or a negative tense. And I know that may seem little, but I mean, you know, we're spiritual people. We live by our beliefs. So it was things like that. It was the, 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 the bringing God into the addiction. I, I just couldn't find it and I just couldn't, but I kept trying. And when you're there, you're also getting things kind of stuck in your head, like sayings that they say, like this disease is going to kill you. Like, I'm not sure my alcoholism was ever going to kill me. I mean, I, I, I'm fortunate enough that I haven't hurt myself. I haven't hurt loved ones. Like 
I mean, when I would drink too much, I just like wouldn't go to the gym. I'd be tired. I wouldn't feel well. I mean, I wasn't like blacking out and burning down houses. Yeah. And that's kind of in, in recovery, right? Like what happens if you're kind of an alcoholic or if, you know, maybe you have alcoholic tendencies or for me, I realized I would abuse alcohol because I didn't know how to handle uh, past trauma or emotions that I was feeling and talking with my therapist and having him be like, so I've listened to you for a few months and I have to be honest, I really don't think that you're an alcoholic. And just to be like, felt like a rug was pulled out from under me. Cause I thought my whole life, like, you know, I have alcoholism in my family and all that stuff. I thought that I was just destined to be an alcoholic and then really being able to work with him to navigate like what abusing alcohol is from alcoholism. Right. I think that's major. Yeah. That there's a difference between being an alcoholic and being someone who can abuse alcohol sometimes. Or weed or drugs. Cause I mean, I have it all in my store, not weed so much, but I have it all in my story. No girl. That's my story. I know. Yeah. But that's, but see, for me, the thing is I'm a total weed addict. Like, I just look back on my life with weed, and I know that there's no middle ground. There's no, there's no moderation possible. That, that fucking plant has me. And you talk about, like, playing the tape forwards, right? Um, and I just know, like, if I were to smoke a joint tomorrow, it would become an every fucking day thing instantaneously because there's just something about my makeup my spirit at this time maybe it'll change in the future but i just know like i can't i can't go into that room whereas with alcohol i have a very different relationship and sometimes in the past i've abused it but i also have a, a sort of self-control and an ability to like moderate where with weed i never had it which i just think is is important to explore this gray area with substances because I do think that recovery programs are by nature very black and white. Absolutely. I mean, they have to be for the most extreme, right? Totally. I think, you know, what's spectacular is it's free. Yeah. How important, like, listen to what I was just saying, like where people can't afford to go on vacation or meth is cheaper than a vacation or groceries or this, this, thing that was built for people is free you just have to want to be there and maybe buy some donuts and that's amazing but i have a much different life than that at this current point and i'm very fortunate to be able to like try a different way because like okay harm reduction like if you think about it the, i remember the first time i heard about it was maybe 10 years ago where in pittsburgh that's where i'm from i love pittsburgh shout out to pittsburgh um they were doing a needle exchange and do you remember the first time you heard this and you were like, what? They're like giving these addicts like fresh needles? How nuts. And you play that tape forward and you're like, okay, this can stop the transmission of HIV. This keeps, you know what I mean? Like that's yeah. like the most extreme case of like harm reduction. But then yeah. you can take it as basic as like, I'm not going to drink tonight because I want to go to the gym tomorrow. Like that's mm -hmm. so simple, right? Like, but that's what harm reduction is, is it's like removing the harm. And as you chip the harm away piece by piece, you might notice there's trauma or there's developmental needs or whatever the case is. And it's just, it's really pretty spectacular. Yeah. I think I've learned in recovery and I just want to say that like marijuana anonymous is how I 
stay away from marijuana and I find incredible value in that program. But I've also learned that like there are as many different types of recovery as there are people on the planet. It's not a one size fits all situation. And I think we can often turn to substances to hide from ourselves. And so when we just are honestly looking at why we're reaching for certain things, it takes us somewhere worth going. And it doesn't have to be the end game of never drinking again or, you know, it's, it's a lot more complicated, I think, when we look at addiction with things that we can't get away from, like food you know, or even sex to some sex, degree. Sex, yeah. So you recently published this really beautiful piece that talks a lot about what you're sharing with us now, about your relationship with alcohol and and so much more than that, honestly. And you've shared with us before we jumped on here that it's been a wild week for you just putting this out into the world. And I'm just curious, what has that been like to expose yourself in this way and what's been the response? You know, it's been... it's. I've had kind of two moments of this. Like... Early on in the pandemic, I was just like screwing around on the internet and I did these silly videos of where I was changing my shirt. I remember. So I, I like collect um, vintage tees. I've, I've loved them forever. And so one day I had like 2000 Instagram followers and then I went to bed and I woke up and I had like a little under 10,000 from like changing a t-shirt. Okay, so <laughs> right, You're like, like, what uh, is happening? Okay. All right, this is weird. And then recently, with that, I um, I'm like, okay, like I don't know if this is my intention, but now I have this platform. So like, what am I gonna do with it? And I know it's like by no means a lot of people, but what is really pretty spectacular from the jump were the way that these people connected with me, and I started by just kind of talking about the fact that it was really hard for me to find clothes. I'm a bigger guy, um, but I, I'm pretty proportionate. Like if you would look at me, like my legs and arms and everything kind of matches, if that makes sense. And so people didn't really understand like what I was saying, but I'm like, I'm a size 38. I can't fit into Zara. I can't like do this stuff. And then I got flooded with like just so many guys who didn't feel seen, like who were also queer, who just were dealing with these body issues. And I was like, wow. I was like, so I could just show people how to put moisturizer on that they see all the time. Or I could maybe reach out to some people and have some lives or have whatever the case is. And that's what I did. And I started kind of just really connecting and like, just being able to have these conversations felt so good. And that eventually morphed into talking about my relationship with alcohol. And then um, someone from Birdie reached out and asked if I would like to write about it. And I did. And the response has just been like, just overwhelming and scary and weird and angry and like all of these things. And I just realized that I think this is it. Like, this is what I'm supposed to do. And thanks for body positivity kind of just leading me to this moment because it's uncharted territory. Yeah, when I think it's, it is on some level the like intersection of all of those things too. Totally. Have you guys read The Velvet Rage? 
Oh, honey, it should yes. be required reading for every homosexual. They should just like give it to your coming out party. <laughs> I, At least I think so. I absolutely agree. Could you imagine if we like went to all the bar mitzvahs and was like, here, it's like here, the, girl. all the little gay Jewish totally. boys. Totally. Like, here, oh here you go. It's your time. And then I think you have to read it again when you turn 29 and you probably need to read it again when you turn 45. Because I've read it a couple times now and it continues to just like reveal itself to me. You know, I think about the Velvet Rage constantly. Like, we are such a unique generation of homosexuals. We have never known love without consequence when it comes to being queer. Like, mm. from the minute I knew I was homosexual, I knew that homosexuals got AIDS. Um, because we grew up in the Nancy Reagan fear generation. Like, yeah. chlamydia is going to kill you. HIV is for only homosexuals. And that paired on with just trying to adapt before it was completely acceptable, before it is what it is now, like we were developing our, our love cycles and we were, you know, becoming these little men or women or, you know, the queer community, everyone in between, like, it's really quite traumatic and it's not talked about very often, you know? No, no, but it's so true. Like, I remember all of my like initial conversations that involved some form of me coming out. They always involved a conversation about AIDS or HIV. Oh my God. Totally. When I came out to my dad, he was like, okay, that's fine. But like, you should never have sex because AIDS is really scary. Right. From a man who was like buying us a playboy magazine for the family every month. Like, and I was like, what an interesting, and my dad and I have a great relationship now and it's, it's, it's a non-issue. It's something I've healed, but for someone who was so pro sex from a heteronormative perspective, like we literally would as a family gather around the playboy magazine every month when it would show up <laughs> to try to find the hidden bunny on the cover. Wild. Yeah. This is a true story for my life. <laughs> I and then I tell it. him, and then I tell him I'm gay and he's like, okay, well that's cool. I still love you, but like, just don't no have sex. sex. And it's yeah. like not a big part of life. Don't worry about it. And I was like, fuck you. It's not a big part of life. Mr. Playboy magazine. The, the, the thing that's like surreal is the, the, the reason I brought that up, cause it may seem like it's kind of over and left field. But when I started doing harm reduction, I realized that I was terrified of sex and I was an extremely sexual person. And I realized that my addictive behavior all circled around sex. I would have never, I mean, I did a little sex work back in the day. I was a Kogo boy. I mean, like I at face value would have never knew that. I would have never understood that. My like my brain held it so tight that being able to do that, like, you know, who would have thought that I drank too much because I was terrified of sex. And like expressing a desire or a want for sex. Yeah. And it goes back, you know, as you strip the onion layers back to being a little boy, like who was just terrified to be a homosexual male. Totally. Even in the 90s or like 2000s, like people still died in the late 90s. Yeah. Well, and I think fear that comes along with being gay isn't exclusive to HIV. I mean, it's dangerous to be an out homosexual walking down the street, you know, you can, I mean, even just a couple weeks ago, we were down in San Diego holding hands at a beach. Then we get called faggot out of a, out of a car window. You know, it's like, it's 2021, you know, I'm like, in I'm Southern California. Come on. But I want to back up for a second. And just for those of 
our listeners who aren't familiar with The Velvet Rage, this is a book written by a psychologist. It's a really great book that kind of delves into the idea that a lot of queer people build their personality around this overcompensation for shame and that the shame of being gay is just in the water of culture, no matter how accepting your family or your community might have been, and that there are these like really ubiquitous patterns that we all express through addiction, through body image, through sex that all relate back to this in some ways lack of self-love. Would you say that's one way to talk about the book? I'd listen to you talk about anything. <laughs> I like literally everything you say to me, just like, God damn, I love it. Like, yes, yes, girl. Yes. That's exactly what it is. But, and, and so like going back to this, even this idea of like living your best life, this, this thing that we're all reaching for that we think we want is coming from this like gnawing wounded hole in all of us and we get the things we think we want we get the body right we get the dream body and we still feel fucking hollow you know like we get the dream job and we still feel fucking hollow because the shame is never addressed you know and like what i've learned and is like the older i get so much of it i didn't even know i was ashamed of like mm. I, I mean it just you know one day like a movie or a song or a uh I don't know. Quarantine for me was really like, just really nuts reflectively. Like I like kept listening to music from like eighth grade and I had no clue why. And I realized that like about like a few months in the quarantine, like my, I was associating with like growing up in the fucking country and like being isolated from everyone. Like I didn't realize that I was like showing these patterns of how like alone I was like in a small town, in a country, in a farm far away. Like in, it's just surreal because like I can tell you the black and white of my life like so easily. But as I started writing this book and opening chapters and like just really spending time like free writing, like just thinking about like situations and I realized how much shame I had to just survive like even before like fifth grade, like the secrets I had to keep the, all of those things that we all have. It's terrifying, but it's also amazing. Well, and it sounds like in the last 12 to 15 months or what have you, like you've gained an even greater sense of like awareness. And I'd say like acceptance of some aspects of yourself, or at least like gotten into that process. And I think that that shame that we talk about too, it drives a lot of like what we would call like the self-care or like wellness world, right? Like it is kind of this like, I wouldn't even know if I would say it was like, it's like a hunt, hidden underlying <laughs> engine to it because I don't know how hidden it is. But as someone who has now like been working in like self-care and you and you worked in beauty. How did all of this like awareness and acceptance around like your own like shame and identity like start to shift your relationship with those? So you know, like I was a Mac boy, like prime Mac, right? Like two thousands, like Viva Glam, like wear slutty clothing and have black nail polish and like <laughs> just be so proud that I worked at Mac. Do you know how taxing like eight hours in front of mirrors everywhere is? 
just nothing to do but pick yourself apart in front of these mirrors or talk about improving this or somewhere right around the Kardashians. Mm. It wasn't enhance what you had anymore. It was like, correct what you don't like. And it just got super surreal to be in makeup, like, and just watch like people literally become a different person and only leave their house as that different person. Like, and it just, you know, for me, like, as I, as I got older, I just, I couldn't do it anymore. Like it was really dark. I think that the beauty industry, and I hate to generalize, but I think the beauty industry for the most part has an underbelly of capitalizing on people's shame. But that's, that's just like marketing in general, right? Like the way we sell you something is to make you feel inadequate and you're only going to be adequate if you buy this thing. You know, especially the higher up I kind of went in the beauty world. And when you sit in on those marketing meetings and like it's 10% about the product and like 90% about the consumer and mm. you just realize that like, this is a really hard space to be in. So do you feel as though the shadow of the beauty industry is also prevalent in the wellness industry? I don't know. I mean, wellness feels new and it also just feels like a hundred years old. And I, I struggle with wellness because sometimes I do feel like it's just a bunch of promises to a lot of people. It's so much work to like constantly work on your wellness. Like I'm a really bad meditator and I don't, don't give me shit, you guys, about saying meditating is the journey or whatever the fuck it is, because I am just <laughs> not a meditator. But if you tell me that it's breath work, I'm there 100%. But if you tell me we're going to meditate, I don't know what it is. I'm like, motherfucker, like, like try to find the exits immediately. But if you just call it breath work, I'm like, I can do that because it's an action, right? Sure. And I think that's a lot of what wellness can be sometimes like goop or whatever it is. I love Gwyneth. I think what she's doing is nuts. I can't believe she's done it this big and for so long and more power to her, but a cold shower isn't going to change your life. Especially if you're like, I'm taking a cold shower and this is going to change my life. <laughs> right. But if you don't think about it and you take that cold shower every single day and you work the wellness, your breathing adapts, you, you know, so it, it's, it's all a cycle, right? But it, like, people just have to buy into it with the right mentality. And they've got to like, really understand that, like, you're not going to leave a different person from one breathwork session or from one, whatever. Yeah, no, I think what you're saying is really profound, actually, is that there's no quick fixes, but that's a lot of what the wellness industry is selling. And it's totally. a response to lifestyles that are just deeply unhealthy and out of balance because of capitalism, consumerism, this, you know, culture in which we live where everything is monetized, including our time. Like the way I think about it is you only need to go on a fucking cleanse if your life is toxic. Otherwise, you don't need to go on a cleanse. And this idea of like wellness as the antidote for an unhealthy lifestyle, it's like, well, what really is needed is for all of us to find ways to be in the world that don't require the triage that the wellness industry is showing up and giving. Absolutely. Like, absolutely. But that's really hard for, like, 
Um, I went to a yoga class here in the city my first time since after quarantine. Um, it was $35. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And then, so I like looked and it was amazing yoga class. Like, I mean, a really cool studio, uh, but you know what, girl? I knew every fucking pose before you said it because it's yoga and I've done it my whole life. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like I wasn't like learning anything new. I was just doing yoga in this space. And then I looked yeah. and everywhere was $35. Yeah. And I was like, why do I need, I can do it in my house. Sure. Like I don't ever feel the same when I do it, but like, that's really how I've been thinking of wellness lately because everywhere in New York, like I took some breathwork classes and they're really cool atmospheres here, like these cool domes or I'm going to uh, Palm Springs uh, and Joshua Tree next month and we are going to the Intrepid or whatever that thing's oh, called. Oh, the, the Integratron. Yeah, yeah, that's it. The Intrepid, I think, is something much different. <laughs> we're going to the Acura? <laughs> yeah, we're going to the Acura. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to the back seat of an Intrepid. Um, no, yeah, we're going to the Integratron or whatever because it's cool. But, you know, it's just still, you're still box breathing, girl. Like, you can do right. it in the car. You can do it down the street. You can do it wherever you want. And like, Yeah. What you're paying for is somebody to hold the space for you. Yeah, and you don't have to do that. No. You can hold your own space, you know, sometimes. And that's really, I didn't realize how much I was falling victim to only counting it if I was paying for it. Mm, wow. When I think a lot of that stems from what we've been talking about, which is like a lot of wellness, I think, can like promote like ideas of like your fragility. You know, it's like you're fragile without this. You know, so then we become dependent on these things. Whereas I think like really great wellness practices or self-care or self-growth people, you know, people working in those spaces are ultimately promoting you to like stand in your own strength, right? Stand in your own power, empower you so that like you don't need me anymore. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's the old school teachings of it, right? Like to be able to like do this and like adapt it to your lifestyle because there always isn't going to be a studio. There always isn't going to be like, you know, what was nuts is when I was working with doing the harm reduction approach, um, something I learned on was um, when I'm scared, I hold my breath Hmm. and I have held my breath my whole life because um, when I was younger, there was a really bad uh, case of like verbal abuse where um, someone in my life would um, take these really sensitive moments when another person in my life wasn't around, like they'd be in the shower, they'd run to get groceries, or whatever the case was. And she would, she would just, I mean, abuse the shit out of me, like spit in my face and call me worthless. And like, then she would snap back whenever the other person would come back home. She would like just snap back into character like it didn't even happen. And the whole time that she would do that, I would hold my breath. And then, so anytime I felt scared or anytime I felt nervous, I would hold my breath. And then I started to use um, Kundalini a little bit in um, my sobriety journey. Uh, It really helped me in the beginning. And I realized it was because of all the breathing, right? Because I have a whole life of holding my breath. And I learned how to like control my anxiety through my breath, which then like dramatically cut down my need to have wine on a Tuesday night to watch the housewives because I could relax by breathing. Okay. I'm having a really interesting 
thought, and maybe I'm off base here. Tell me, sing it to me. We as queer people, particularly, like we fucking love the housewives, right? Like, like, I mean, and, and more than queer people love the housewives. I know there's a lot of people that love the housewives, but I'm curious about like what we like about the housewives is the fucking drama, right? Like we come to watch the drama. And is it because we are in some ways addicted to drama because we grew up in drama because we're always holding our breath because in some ways it makes us feel at home, right? Like you keep perpetrating the same cycle of abuse or it's are you going to say safe space? Well, it's a safe space because you know it, you know? Right. But how do you deal with cringe? So this is something that I've been really um, thinking about a lot lately. I'm yeah. horrible with cringy moments. They yeah. make me sick to my stomach. Like me too. Where my partner can totally watch it and be like, "What the? F why are you so dramatic? Like it's not happening to us." Where I like eat it. I like yeah. eat it. I swallow it and it lives in my belly. Like anytime something is cringe, like I can't, like I can't deal, but I, I love the housewives because like, it's like a surreal sense of cringe. Yeah. I don't know if I internalize it. Like you're saying, I feel like I have a little bit of both. Yeah. But he doesn't internalize it the way that I do. Angel has like a stronger stomach for cringe. I think that's something right. And you guys, it's mm -hmm. like, and you guys are a couple and you've been a couple for a long time. And I think like, somehow in my relationship with Mikey, like the fact that he can like talk me down from my, those cringy moments and like some kind of deep part of my mind and my psyche is something that I like about him is that, cause if we both cringe, we would just spiral. Like, you're like, Oh, Oh no, this is the worst. Like, Oh, Garcelle right. leave the dinner party. Like I totally, you don't deserve this. Yeah, you don't deserve this. You don't want to be there. You just want to be famous. Go. It's like, <laughs> yeah. And you already are famous, Garcelle. It's right. Funny. Like, you don't have to do this. Well, it's like horror films too, right? Like, we love to be scared. And, you know, as a double Scorpio, the sense of, like, needing it to be intense. And especially as queer people or any marginalized person who, like, grows up and you have to have a heightened sense of safety and yourself and like the household you described growing up in it's like it's it was always at a 10 right like there was always some sort of crisis going on and so if you drink coffee every day you got to drink more coffee to get the buzz and so we keep reaching for these more and more intense experiences to give us that like hit of whatever it is we need to feel alive you know and I hate that for me, the housewives in some ways make me feel alive, but it's where I'm at at this moment, you know? Totally. Well, you get, you know, I think about what it's like being in a queer relationship where kids aren't on the table. Mm. Like we don't want children. And, you know, sometimes we bicker like endlessly over things like cheese. I don't know, whatever it's going to be. And sometimes I think like this would be so much easier if we had a child to fixate on or we had something other than each other and like our neurotic behaviors, like being at a 10, cause we've been together for years. Well, and being in like a long-term relationship and they are present for all of my like processes of gaining greater awareness and gaining greater acceptance. And by allowing yourself to like really learn how to love another person, you obviously like learn to love yourself more has it been 
super challenging for you being in, in this relationship to have to be confronted by some of these things? Or, or would you say it's now like much more helpful? Well, you know, it's surreal too. once you deal with addiction on top of that, or um, I don't even know what I had really when I look back at it. But like I said to Mikey earlier today, we were just shopping and we just had a beautiful day. Um, it's beautiful here. It's like perfect fall, like apples and pumpkins and like perfect. And we were just walking and I like felt a sense of guilt for becoming who I am now. And like having spent all this other time as a, just a, like a selfish person, a spiraling selfish person. And as a Taurus, you know, like there's no mercy is my way or the highway. And he's had to deal with that so long. And I just caught him in the right light today where I felt like, like, God, thank, like, thank you for staying. Like, and now as my clouds are starting to kind of disappear and kind of separate and I'm starting to see the light of who I really am like healing from trauma healing from addiction and like you know not in a toxic masculine in any way but just really feeling like a beauty in my manhood and like being able to be a stand-up man for him is just really like spectacular it's like a feeling I can't describe when it sounds like you're like a like the beginning of a new book you know that you're writing for yourself literally (laughs) totally what is your hope for it you know i think i i I want to become a drug and alcohol counselor um that's something i've been working towards now for a little bit and i just want to kind of even out all the vapid beauty shit i did listen like not all of it was vapid but a lot of it was and i just really want to give back i mean i sound so cheesy but like just being able to talk to people and you know I've always had kind of a I've always had a kind of magic to me where I can connect with people and people feel safe around me and secure that I want to be able to just give them space to talk and heal and I want to eat some of their pain I want to help them because like for so long it was like backstage fashion shows and all of this stuff where I was getting painted like paid an obscene amount of money to do literally the most vapid shit in the world. I want to give back, you know? Now you get to realize that just by being yourself and who you are now, you can do that. I mean, who, who would have thought that like a video of you changing your shirt <laughs> would ultimately the boys be... love these titties. Yeah. But it was a way <laughs> like, of, you know, I think offering people like a sense of, of community and like acceptance for themselves. Right. Like, I know for myself, like, I think that kind of deepened our connection. Cause I remember reaching out to you and being like, when you were doing a lot of your body positivity posts, like I'm someone who has struggled with that myself and like acceptance around my body. And like, just even like seeing you like in there, it touched me as well. It's like helped chip away at my own constant shame <laughs> that I've like held on to Cause it's just like an old friend, you know? It's surreal because we have such similar bodies and you're always so like positive about mine. And I, I would see that with so many people like where they would be so nice to me about my body. And when they would re- internally talk about their own, it would be in such a different light and we weren't dramatically different. But you need like that support sometimes, right? Absolutely. You do. And even not even support, even visibility, like seeing yeah. it. 
The visibility, I think, is huge. Like, you need somebody to say, like, this is also beautiful. This is also worth being seen in order to start to, like, retrain the narrative in your head. There's something about, like, taking sexuality out of it. Hmm. Like, totally. Because, okay, say you see a large person on a billboard. You don't have to want to fuck them. You, you just have to respect them. Like, and I think people are having a really hard time separating that. Like, where they can say it's beautiful, or they can fetishize it even. Like, or all of these different things. It's not about that. It's about respect and visibility. Not about sex. And that's because everything that's been projected into the culture has been for sexuality, right? Absolutely. And like the changing the shirt video, the, uh, listen, I don't want to be that girl, but like the nasty fetishized, like, can you take your shirt off and eat a pizza for $25? Like, yes, but also fuck off. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. You know, like it was just so surreal that because I was a bigger guy or because I had a soft belly and they could see it, that they thought that they were entitled to completely sexualize the situation because my shirt was off or, you know, I know every woman out there is like, shut the fuck up. Get this <laughs> chubby white guy. Like, welcome to my life. But it, it was such a large part of this, you know, is that it's, you don't have to, you don't have to like want to fuck everyone that you respect in this kind of a right. That's like working towards a body positivity goal. Like they're not doing it to be more fuckable to you. They're doing it to feel comfortable in their skin. Okay. So yeah, that's really, that's really getting to something important, which I think is how do we explore the difference between wanting to be beautiful to yourself versus like wanting to be beautiful for others. Right. Cause I think you do a really good job. I think the videos that you do about like your skincare rituals and like, there's a love for yourself that's, that I feel in those videos. Whereas you can see other people who are maybe even doing the same thing, but it's like, there's a, there's a desperation. It's like, I need to achieve some sort of beauty for other people. I think it's like a gratitude thing. I mean, I don't know any other way to do it, but I'm like grateful to wake up as Shane every day. And you know, it's things like anti-aging. I fucking hate the term anti-aging when it comes to skincare. Like what an impossible promise. Yeah. Like, and what a gross, like, we're all aging, like, and it's beautiful and it's fine. Agreed. But I still get fillers under my eyes. Like, <laughs> so it's like, I can say this, but I'm still like, fill me up. Like, I'm like, first wives club over here, but I'm not. <laughs> but like, where is that balance? And I always want to make sure my authenticity is in check with it. Like, I do get Botox sometimes. I get a little bit of filler. I do kind of want to... I want to cherish the process and respect it, but I also, you know, if the technology's out there, I want to do it. So like, I always feel really torn on that. Yeah. So thank you for saying that. Cause it, it's, it's like improving yourself for yourself and not improving for the way other people see you. Yeah. And I think like authenticity, as we always talk about is not a fixed point. It is always moving. And if you're just inquiring into why, and am I doing this from a place of like loving myself? Or am I doing this for other people? Or am I doing this as like a way of punishing myself that can help illuminate certain actions? Because the same action performed by two people with different intentions has a completely different vibration. You know, like two people can go get fillers, 
But if one person's getting filler because they fucking hate themselves, I think this is the only way to get somebody to pay attention to them. If somebody goes and gets it because they're like, I celebrate myself and I feel good if I do this. It's a very different activity. Same, same actual action. We talked about this a couple weeks ago about like working out. You know what I mean? Like if you're working out to fucking punish yourself or if you're working out to like celebrate your body, hugely different. Huge. Like I, um, that first essay I wrote talked a lot about that because that's really where the switch came where my body really started to shift when I took the obsessiveness out of it, where I just worked on like being more mobile and being more flexible. So I didn't get hurt and like took a year, took a really long time to see the results, but like always be conscious that very little of this might actually have to do with your body. And someone said that to me, you know, when I really started this journey and I spent some time kind of really thinking on that, like, is it really about this vessel that I live in? Like, is that really where this obsession is coming from for me? And it, it really wasn't. And when I was able to shift that, like I really started to make the progress that I wanted to see. Guys, I would like to state I am not a medical professional on any topic that I talked about today. <laughs> Neither are here. we. I'm just Isn't your weird friend over here in New York talking shit with this girl. Look, we are just having conversations around experience. Yeah, well, we're so we're so grateful to know you, Shane. We're so grateful that you're out in the world. We're so grateful that you have a platform because honestly, your point of view and your voice and your heart is so valid and we need it in the world. Well, thanks, guys. Tell the children where they can find you. This is like my favorite part of Hot Ones. Do you guys ever watch Hot Ones where celebrities eat hot chicken wings? No, I don't know anything about this. (laughs) It's my favorite thing in the world. Really famous people sit across from this like charming bald man and eat really spicy wings until they're sweating and crying. But he's making them talk about their career the whole time. And then at the very end when they're like covered in tears and hot sauce. He's like, tell these kids where you can find them. And they're always frustrated. They're like, on the goddamn internet. Like, instead of like being productive about it. But you can find me in New York City, wandering the streets. <laughs> uh, spouting out wisdom. Spouting out wisdom and peeing on people. Um, or you can find me at Shane of Fools. That's my, it's both my Instagram handle and it's also my website. And my YouTube and everything. Not to re-traumatize that microaggression, but spell it for the children. Also, microaggression is the fact that Shane and shame sound extremely similar my whole life. So when someone's talking about shame, I'm always like, here, 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 hello, I'm here. Um, but it's S-H-A-I-N, Shane of Fools. Perfect, perfect. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day to do this with us. Thanks, guys. This was fun. Well, we had a blast with Shane. Adore, adore, adore you, Shane. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We loved it. I know. I look forward to that day in the future when we go to New York and just paint the town red with her. Yes, like get Levain cookies and skip through Central Park. I want to like wake up early on a Sunday and go into Soho and watch the streets come alive the way he suggested on his Instagram recently. That sounds fabulous. I know, right? All right. Well, that sound means it's time for our tarot card of the episode. So just take a moment, close your eyes, tune in, tune out, tune upside down. 
just open yourself up to receive the message that's right for you. Trusting that this message will resonate no matter the future place or time to which you listen to this episode. Just one card that serves as an oar to row us through these cosmic waters. And that card is... The Two of Cups reversed. Oh, so Mercury retrograde. So Mercury retrograde. So the Two of Cups is about love. It's two figures offering cups to each other. And of course, this is definitely one of those cards that shows up to invite us into loving relationship with other people. But I think especially when it's reversed, it's really about offering those cups to yourself. And even more so, I think it's about allowing the parts of yourself that you hide or you shun or you've never even allowed to get to know, inviting them in and letting them have some agency and some access to your life. We tend to crystallize our identities based on what is successful, based on what's comfortable, and we are so complex. We contain multitudes. And so the Two of Cups sometimes says like, hey, what parts of yourself are you not allowing? Are you not inviting in? Let them come into center stage of your life and put on a show. So it's really about like partnering with yourself in new and surprising ways. And I think that this is a great time to do that. What part of yourself do you need to partner with more? Honestly, probably like a more playful part of myself, like a messy, creative part of myself, you know? What about you? Well, initially I was going to say my weirdness, but I almost feel like I've already kind of let that show a little more, but I guess it could always show more. Keep pushing it. But also my sexiness. Oh, I'm here for that. Short shorts are just going to get shorter. Mm-hmm. If there are any shorts at all. All right, everyone. Well, Child, thanks we go. so much for listening thanks to for us. Being here. We really appreciate it. Um, as we mentioned before, it is really lovely if you do review us um, because it does help, uh, particularly in the Apple podcast world, to help with the algorithms and such. But also just lovely if you wouldn't mind sharing this podcast with a friend or anyone you think would be interested in it. Um, we really appreciate the community that is happening around this podcast and continues to grow. Um, and also just like love hearing that you guys are connecting to it so much. So thank you. Uh, you can always find out everything we have going on at thespiritualgaze.com or you can find us on Instagram at The Spiritual Gaze, Facebook at The Spiritual Gaze, uh, when they're both working, and Twitter at Spiritual Gaze. Until next time, this has been your transit through The, the Spiritual, Spiritual Gaze. Gaze.